The title of today's message is The Overflow of a Thankful Heart. You know, as a Christian, I really love reading and I love studying the Old Testament. You probably noticed that if you've come to church here for any amount of time, that we, we have actually spent quite a bit of time studying the Old Testament. And I love studying the Old Testament. And here's why. You know why? Because the Old Testament, reading the Old Testament, studying the Old Testament as a Christian is a lot like watching the movie The Sixth Sense, right? And let me explain to you what I mean by that. How many of you guys have seen that movie, The Sixth Sense, right? I see dead people, that whole thing. All right, so the movie, if in case you haven't seen it, I'm going to totally ruin it for you, so I hope you're ready. But it came out like 20 years ago, so if you haven't seen it, that's kind of on you, right? So anyway, the movie is a, it's about a boy who sees dead people, right? He sees them everywhere. And in this movie, right, this boy, he starts meeting with a psychologist who's played by Bruce Willis and this psychologist Bruce Willis he talks to him about the things that are going on and he talks to him throughout the movie but at the end of the movie there's this big twist right you realize something that really changes everything it changes everything that you've seen up until that point how you understand it and how you perceive it because you realize that the psychologist Bruce Willis he's actually dead too like he's been dead the whole time and then you're like wait a second like I didn't realize that until now and and then you realize that Everything you've seen up until that point, it, it puts it in a whole different light. It, it changes everything. In fact, you almost feel compelled to just stop the movie and go and watch it again, like from the beginning, because this new information that you have causes you to see everything in a whole new way. And, and then you watch it again, knowing what you know now, and then you start to notice things that were there all along, but you didn't notice them the first time around. Or maybe you just saw them, but you kind of didn't think it was all that significant. Like, for example, you realize that throughout the whole movie, nobody ever looks at Bruce Willis because he's dead. Nobody can see him except for the little boy. And the first time you watch that movie... Right, you might have seen that, but he didn't stick out to you. But, but then you watch it again, knowing what you know now, knowing the whole story, and now you see everything in a whole new light. Well, that's exactly how it is with the Old Testament and reading the Old Testament. It's easy to just read through it, and there are a lot of stories in there. You read them, and you're like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, that's kind of strange, but then, uh, you know, whatever, and you just kind of move on. But when you realize that all of the Old Testament is building up to the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you come to understand the gospel, well, then you can never read the Old Testament the same way ever again. And when the early Christians studied the Bible, guess what they were studying? They were studying the Old Testament. The apostles, they would open up the scriptures, they would open up the Old Testament, and that's what those first Bible studies were. For years, amongst the early Christians, they would show them how all of the Old Testament, all along, it had always been pointing to, it had always been speaking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. See, when you realize that, you can never read the Old Testament the same way ever again. And in fact, you feel compelled to just read it all over again. Read it now in light of this new understanding of what it's actually all about. You see, I would put it this way. Every page of the Old Testament is rustling with the rumors of what is yet to come. You see, every story of the Old Testament is whispering the rumors of what is to come in Jesus Christ. And this passage we have before us this morning is a great example of that. The, we're going to see three things as we look through these two chapters today. The first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 14, we're going to see a picture of atonement. A picture of atonement. 
We read this in chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. So in the ancient world, a famine was a big problem, right? And, uh, and a famine was almost always associated with drought. I mean, they're kind of equal. If you have drought and it's prolonged, you get a famine. You know, the land of Israel, it's a semi-arid climate. It's a lot like maybe the western slope of Colorado, you know, like Delta, Grand Junction, Montrose area. It's dry, but it's not a total desert, right? Like they can grow crops there and they're able to farm. But if there's ever a drought, well, that's a huge problem. And in those days, they didn't have like systems of artificial irrigation like we do in our days to, to mitigate the problems of drought. And so if prolonged droughts happen, that would cause famine. And of course, prolonged famine leads to death. And here where we read that there was famine, that this went on for three years, you've got to understand the severity of this. This is a national disaster. People are going to die if this doesn't change. And so David, as the king of Israel, as a man after God's own heart, he prays to the Lord and he asks the Lord about this problem. We see that in the end of there in chapter 1. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So David sought the Lord about this famine. He asked, Lord, what's going on? Why is this happening? This famine's a major problem. People are going to start dying. Lord, are you trying to get our attention with this somehow? What is this all about? And the Lord answers David and he says, the reason this is happening is because there is blood guilt, right? He says that it's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because Saul massacred, Saul killed the Gibeonites. We read in verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So when David heard that Saul had killed the Gibeonites, it must have sent a chill up his spine because David and every other Jewish person would have known that the people of Israel were under a covenant obligation. They were under a, a sacred oath to protect the Gibeonites. You see, during the time of Joshua, that's 400 years before what we're reading here, under the time of Joshua, when Joshua had led the people of Israel you know, out of the wilderness and into the land of Canaan, God had given them one specific instruction. He said, I don't want you to make any peace treaties with any of the nations in that land. I want you to drive them all out and I want you to take possession of that land. But there's an interesting thing that happens in Joshua chapter 9. In Joshua chapter 9, we read this story that this is referring to about the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites were a small nation. They lived there in the region of Canaan. And they knew that the Israelites had come in and the Israelites were going to take possession of this land. So they came up with a plan because they wanted to kind of stick around. You know, they didn't want to fight. So they put on the rattiest tattered clothes that they could find. They put on the most beat up, worn out sandals that they could find. They got these bags and they filled them with moldy bread. And their, their goal with this was to make it seem like they had come from a far, far distance when in reality they lived right next door. 
And so the Gibeonites, one day they present themselves to Joshua and the people of Israel. And they say, oh, hi, you know what? We see you guys are here in the land and you're uh, taking possession and stuff. And we would like to make a treaty with you. We think we can coexist. And the Israelites said, well, you know, we, we were given specific instructions. We are not supposed to make any peace treaties with any of the nations in this area. And they say, oh, well, hey, no problem because we're not from around here. I mean, look, look at our clothes. They're all tattered because we've come a long, long way. I mean, look at our shoes. They're all worn out. We've got these bags of moldy bread. I mean, clearly we're not from around here, so it's no big deal. You guys can make a treaty with us. And so the people of Israel said, well, yeah, I guess if you're not from here, we can make a treaty with you. And so they did. But shortly thereafter, the Israelites found out that the Gibeonites had deceived them, that they had tricked them into making this treaty. But now they've already entered into this covenant, and so they're kind of locked in. And God told the people of Israel, he said, I expect you, you are obligated to keep that covenant because you gave your word. You made a promise. Even if they deceived you, you still made a promise. See, the problem was, though, though with, uh, with what's happening here in 2 Samuel 21, that Saul, at some point, had broken this covenant with the Gibeonites. He had broken it. And the Israelites had attacked him under Saul's leadership. They had killed him. And part of that covenant oath, which is interesting, you can read it there in Joshua chapter 9. The covenant oath the Israelites had said, May the wrath of God come upon us if we ever break this covenant. Now that's a, that's a heavy thing to say. And so here we are several hundred years later, and Saul has broken the covenant. It says that he broke it in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. He struck down the Gibeonites. Now there are several things I'd like to point out before we move on. And the first is this, that what this story speaks of is this, that good intentions do not excuse bad actions. You know, that good intentions don't excuse bad actions. Saul had a good intention. Don't you think that's a good thing for a king to be zealous for his people? Saul was. He had good intentions, but yet his actions were still totally wrong. You know, I think a lot of times we try to appeal to our good intentions as an excuse for our bad actions. But it's important to see this, that God examines both our intentions and our actions. The second thing we see here is that we're reminded from this that God expects us to keep our promises and be faithful to the covenants that we have made. For most people in our society, you know, the most significant covenant relationship they will ever enter into is marriage. You know, marriage is a covenant relationship, meaning that it's a relationship predicated on promises which each partner makes to the other. And I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I have talked to married couples who are struggling, and one of them or both of them will say, you know, my husband or my wife, he or she is just not the person I married. You know, they're not the person I fell in love with. They're not the person who I originally uh, desired to be with. The person I married was kind and thoughtful and loved Jesus. The person I married was fun and happy and good-looking. And this person is no longer that, right? And that's just not who my spouse is anymore. They've changed. And if I would have known that this is the person I was marrying, then I wouldn't have entered into it, you know? I feel like I kind of entered into this whole thing on false premises or or maybe things have just changed now And, and I've had several people even go so far as to say I think my spouse purposefully deceived me like they they put their best face forward and misled me to believe that they were a certain type of person when in reality they were not and and now think about it doesn't that sound a whole lot like what the Israelites would have said 
about the Gibeonites, right? They would have said, hey, they deceived us. They misled us. They, they led us to believe one thing about them was true, and then we tied the knot with them, and then we found out that they weren't actually who they, you know, made themselves out to be. Can't we just annul this covenant? Can't we just, uh, you know, we're not actually obligated to keep this covenant promise anymore now, are we? Because they've changed. They're not who they, they said they were. They're not who we thought they were. They're not who they used to be. But God says, you know what? I expect you to keep your word and be faithful to your vows. You know why? Because guess what? You're not always a dream to be with either. But God says, I have bound myself up with you in a covenant. And I'm going to be faithful to that covenant to the end. You see, our God is a covenant-keeping God. And that's why he expects his people to be covenant-keeping people. You see, the fact that God has such high expectations for us, that we would keep our covenants, you know, that fact should fill us with great confidence that he will also keep all of his covenants and the promises that he has made to us. So let's go on from verse 3. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Notice that word atonement. Now that is like a humongous, gigantic concept in the Bible. It's one of the most important concepts. Atonement is the act of paying the price for a sin or a wrong committed. It is done in order to wipe away guilt and restore a covenant relationship. Okay, let's see what they say. Verse 4, the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, well, What do you say that I shall do for you? You know, they're, so they, they don't want any money. They say, David, we don't want your money. And David says, Oh, you know, you guys are super gracious. So, so what is it that you do want? Well, check it out in verse 5. They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that's Saul, so that we would... Have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that, they may, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Wow. Well, uh, maybe you say, you know, how can this be? How can this be that David would go along with this? That David would say okay to this? I mean, why should these men have to die for something that they didn't do? You see, this introduces us to a very interesting concept, doesn't it? It introduces us to this concept. Think about this. The guilt of Saul's sin has been passed down to his descendants. The guilt of Saul's sin has been passed on to the entire nation. So check out what happens in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Again, the idea of keeping our covenants. Verse 8, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Moholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of the barley harvest, or at the first day of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. So these seven men, these descendants of Saul, are hanged. Their lives are sacrificed in order to make atonement. 
Do you get the picture here? Do you remember what I told you at the beginning about the movie The Sixth Sense, right, and about the Old Testament? Remember what I told you earlier? That every page of the Old Testament is rustling with the whispers of what is to come in Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Because of the sin of one man, because of the sin of Saul, a long time ago, now the people of Israel have inherited this guilt and this curse has come upon them. And as a result of the curse, they're all gonna die. But there is a way. There is a way for them to be saved. Atonement has to be made for this sin. And sons, innocent sons, must give their lives to atone for the sins of the nation. Now think about that. If you're the father of a son, I am. You know, how would you feel about your son dying for something that he didn't do? But these seven sons, they, they aren't boys, right? These are grown men. So they could have run, right? They could have resisted. They could have said, no way, I'm not doing this. I'm not responsible for what Saul did. I'm out of here. But instead of doing that, these seven sons, they go willingly to their death. They offer themselves up willingly, being obedient to their king, being obedient even unto death because they knew that their sacrificial death would atone for the sins of the nation and that by their deaths they would save others from the curse of sin and they would cause blessing from heaven to rain down on, on their countrymen. And so they died so that others could live. Why is this story here? I mean, isn't it kind of a weird story? Isn't it kind of bizarre, right? Why is this story in here? Well, here's why. Because this is a foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing of another man who would later come. And he would also give his life willingly, not for the sins of just one nation, but for the sins of the whole world. And you see, just like how all of Israel inherited the guilt of Saul, the Bible tells us that we have inherited the sin and the guilt of our ancestors from the beginning of time the very first people who ever lived they broke a covenant with God and because of that we now are under a curse the curse of sin and death and we are doomed to die but God because of his great love for us because of his great love for you he sent his own son to die in your place, the innocent in the place of the guilty in order to atone for your sin, in order to atone for your guilt so that you who were doomed to death might live both now and for eternity so that blessing from heaven might pour down upon you. You see, this story is an incredible picture. It's a picture of Jesus Christ and his work of atonement. It's a whisper, it it's carries the rumor of what is to come. When the man, when the perfect son, you see that number seven, that's symbolic of perfection in the Bible. You, so if you will, the perfect man. He comes and he makes atonement for the sins of the world so that we might be saved. Even the method of their execution is significant because they had to be hanged. You see, the law of Moses said in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it said that whoever is hanged from a tree is accursed. And these descendants of Saul, they were hanged. Why? Because it was understood that they were bearing the curse of Saul's sin. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about that same verse there in Deuteronomy from the Old Testament about the curse. And he talks about the significance of why Jesus had to be hanged on a tree when he died. And he says there in Galatians chapter 3, he says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you break one commandment, 
You're a sinner and you're under a curse. But he says Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And as a result of this sacrifice, now look what's going to happen. Blessing is going to rain down from heaven. Look from verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aia, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aia, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and of Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. You know, in ancient cultures, there was one fate that was considered worse than death. And the fate considered worse than death was to be that after you died, to have your body defiled. And so the Gibeonites, they don't just want these men to die, but they want them to be desecrated. And so they leave their bodies hanging out in the open air for the scavengers to devour them, for the birds of the air to pick at them. But there's this woman, this faithful woman, Rizpah, she comes and she takes it upon herself to cover these bodies and protect them until the men of Israel can come and they bury these bodies. And what's interesting is that they give them a hero's burial. They give them a hero's burial because these men had given their lives. They had sacrificed themselves. They had died so that others could live. And because of their sacrifice, atonement was made and life came out of death and blessing rained down from heaven in the form of actual rain. So here in this story, what we see is a wonderful picture, an incredible foreshadowing of the gospel of how Jesus Christ has atoned for the sins of us by his death so that our covenant relationship with God can be restored and so that blessing can pour down from heaven upon us. Okay, the next thing we see in this, this section here, in, from verse 15 of chapter 21, we see this theme of outliving yourself. Here, these last couple chapters of 2 Samuel are kind of like a catch-all basket, right? Like anything extra that happened kind of towards the end of David's life, it's not all chronological. It just kind of wants us to know about the stuff that happened at the end of David's life so that we know. So David's getting older and we read this. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new, st a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of the Lord. You see, David is getting older. He's probably 65, 70 years old right now. He's probably still strong enough to take most of us men in here. But you know, a Philistine giant is just a Philistine giant. You know what I mean? And David just can't hang with the Philistine giants the way that he used to be able to. You know, it's always a kind of sad when you see men and women who at one time were so strong. They seemed invincible. It seemed like there was nothing they couldn't do, but as they get older, they start to lose that strength. 
You know, I remember uh, my own grandfather. He was a sailor. He was just this giant, imposing man. But as he got older, he wasn't quite as big and he wasn't quite as imposing and his strength started to wane. And it's kind of sad when you see those things happen. But it is the reality of life and it's the reality of getting older. And now David is a, is a man here who's for so many years, since his youth, he's been so incredibly strong. From his youth, he's been a warrior. He fought giants and won. But now as he's getting older, he's no longer able to fight giants. And you can imagine that this must have been a very difficult realization for David to come to. And it must have been a very difficult realization for the people around David who looked to him and who loved him and who saw him as their leader and who depended on him. It must have been a very difficult realization for them to come to as well. But I want you to see what David did in order to outlive himself. Verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And then Shibekai the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jareogarim, or however you pronounce that, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again at Gath, and when there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. David gets to this point in his life, here's the deal, where he's no longer able to fight giants anymore. But notice this, David has now raised up a whole crew of giant slayers who are able to carry on and fight giants even after he's not able to anymore. Notice in verse 22 that the, the victory against these four giants is attributed not only to the men who killed them, but it's also attributed to David. You know why? Because David had trained these men. He had taught them to do what he did. You see, David didn't just fight giants. He taught other people how to fight giants. That's his legacy. David outlived himself because not only was he a giant fighter himself, but he raised up a new generation of giant fighters who would outlive him, who would carry on his torch once he was gone. So David passed it on to these guys. He passed on to them his heart for the Lord. He passed on to them his zeal for doing God's will. He passed on to them his passion for following God and being used by God and his love for the people of God. He passed those things on to a new generation. And when the time came, he passed the baton. You know, God's word encourages us to be people who seek to outlive ourselves. The love that you have for God, the passion that you feel for living for God, the appreciation you have for the gospel, the drive you feel to serve God, you need to pass that on. You know, that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple making disciples. One of my favorite places that talks about this is in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, a lot of people don't read the book of Deuteronomy, but it's really a wonderful book. Uh, here's what it is. The Deuteronomy is this big speech that Moses gave to the new generation of Israelites when he was kind of fading off the scene and when Joshua was coming in. And he says to the new generation, these are the things that I want to pass on to you. He's passing the baton there in Deuteronomy. And so this is one of the things that Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says this, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today, they shall be on your heart. And check this out. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. What Moses is saying here is this. I want you to be disciples But I want you to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. And I also want this. I want you to not only be disciples, but I want you to make disciples. I want you to let your heart burn with passion for the Lord. And I want you to pass on that knowledge of God and that love for God to other people and even to the next generation. You know, think about it this way. For the past 2,000 years, the baton of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the baton of the mission of God has been passed down from one generation to the next. And some generations have taken that baton and they've run extremely well with it. Other generations haven't run as well. Some generations have stumbled. But some generations also, they took that baton and they ran extremely well. And they changed the world, literally changed the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize, here's some things, do you realize that in 100 years time, the continent of Africa went from 2% Christian to 50% Christian in 100 years? Did you know that in the 20th century, in the past 60 years, South Korea went from 5% Christian to 30% Christian? You see, these changes are directly attributable to the work of missionaries and churches who raised up and sent out and funded missionaries. And those missionaries went to those places and they passed on the knowledge of God and their heart for God and they taught other people to do the same, to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are also making disciples of Jesus Christ. And now I want you to think about it this way. The baton of the gospel, the baton of the mission of God has been passed to us. It's been placed in our hands. The baton is here in our hands and we have a high and holy calling. What are we gonna do with it? And one day we will even pass on from here. And if we, were, if we are wise, we will outlive ourselves. We won't be just a flash in the pan, but even now we will be thinking about legacy and what we will leave behind and how we will outlive ourselves, how we will run with that baton and how we will hand it on to the next generation. You see, that is the essence of who we are as a church is that we are disciples, individual disciples, and, and then corporately we are disciples who are making disciples. Disciples of Jesus Christ who learn his ways, who follow hard after him, and who pass it on and help others also become disciples of Jesus Christ. And finally, I want to end here in chapter 22 with uh, talking about the overflow of a thankful heart. We read in verse 1. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. As we've been seeing, David is advancing in years. The city's 65, 70 years old. He's getting up there. And, and in his older age now, David begins to reflect on his life, to look back over all the years. And as he does, he finds his heart is just overwhelmed as he considers how good and how gracious and how merciful God has been to him over the course of all his years. 
And as David reflects on God's goodness to him over the years, it's like his heart just wells up, like his heart just begins to become so full that it just is, it's about to burst with thankfulness and praise. It's almost like it's just too much for him to hold it in, and so David just lets it burst forth in this song of praise and thanksgiving to God. That's what we have here in chapter 22, this song that David sings as he looks back over the course of his life, as he looks back at how good God has been to him, it just this song flows forth of, of praise, of the overflow of his heart comes this song that is full of gratitude. This song, by the way, is also found in the book of Psalms with a few variations. This is Psalm 18. And in this song, David, he uses this very vivid, very poetic language to to recall and describe how at times in his life when he was facing great distress, he cried out to the Lord and God heard his prayers and God took action. God moved heaven and earth and he's just blown away by how God has loved him and God has answered his prayers and God's been so good to him. And his heart is just overflowing with gratitude and praise to God. And let me just say this. If you think about it and you look back, you'll notice that the best moments in David's life they all came from this place. All of the best moments in David's life, the times when he really shined, the times when he really acted as a man after God's own heart, they came out of this place of this overflow of his heart, this heart that was so full of the things of God. And out of that overflow came all that was good in his life. David writes in Psalm 23, he says, God, you cause my cup to overflow. You understand, he's painting a word picture there. Think about that picture. Do you see the picture that David's painting for you? David's saying, I'm like a cup. My life is like a cup. And God, you have just poured in and poured in, blessing upon blessing. And now I am so full. You've done so much. You've poured into me. I can't take it anymore, he says. It's just going to overflow. He says, God, you just keep pouring. You don't stop. And I don't have the capacity to hold it in any longer. And he says, but God, you just keep pouring and it's just going to start spilling out. It's going to start spilling over the rim and onto the table and it's just going to run everywhere and it's going to go in all directions. That's the picture that David's painting. And that's what this song here is. I want you to see this. This is the overflow of a thankful heart. It's this point where God says, or David says, God, you've blessed me so much. You've been so good to me. It's just more than I can handle. It's too much. I can't contain it. It's just gonna start spilling out of me. You know, all the best moments in David's life, they came from this place. You know that? They came from this heart that was bursting because it was so full of the things of God. He writes the Psalms out of the overflow of a heart that's full of praise and thankfulness as he looks at the goodness of God, as he looks at who God is. He fights giants, he fights Goliath out of the overflow of a heart that is full of faith in a big God who can do anything through anyone. He, he weathers the storms of his life, the difficulties, like the one with Absalom that we just read about over the last few weeks. He does all that out of the overflow of a heart that is full of trust in a God who has shown himself to be sovereign and faithful. And I want to encourage you to do the same in your life. To let your heart just become so full of the things of God. To reflect on how good he has been to you. How faithful he has been to you. How he loved you even when you didn't love him. How he was faithful to you even when you were not faithful to him. How he has never left you or forsaken you. How he has upheld you. How he has blessed you beyond what you could ever deserve. How he has been so merciful to you. And not only that, but he has delighted in you. 
Think about those things. Ponder those things. Think about the atonement that he worked for you by taking your place, the innocent for the guilty, so that you might be set free from sin, so you might be set free from guilt, so that blessing might rain down from heaven upon you. Consider those things. Reflect on who he is, his might, his strength, his gentleness, his kindness, his love. Reflect on how he has worked in your life until you feel your heart just begin to well up and become so full that you can't keep it in anymore. And and then you say, you know what? I just can't contain it. It has to come out. And then out of that overflow, let praise and thanksgiving, let actions of love and mercy, let them flow forth. Let them overflow. Praise him out of the overflow of a thankful heart. Live for him out of the overflow of a thankful heart. What I'd like to do in closing is I'd like to read this song with you. What I mean is corporately, which means I'd like you to read it along with me. We're going to have the words here up on the screen. So if you would please stand up with me. This is how we're going to close. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. And after we read, we're going to sing and we're going to worship and and we're going to we're going to sing to the Lord. We're going to praise him out of the overflow of thankful hearts. We're going, to, we're going to praise him for the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We're going to praise him because he's been so good and merciful and faithful. And then we're going to go out from here. And you know what else we're going to do? We're going to live for him. We're going to live for him out of the overflow of hearts that are bursting with thankfulness and praise yes. to our great God who has loved us incredibly and abundantly. So I think we got the words up there. Let's go ahead and read this together if you would. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. 
The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God, the rock of my salvation. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Amen.